Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Joining me today is our correspondent, Adam Bristol. Welcome back, Adam. Hi, Andre. Thanks for having me. And we thought that we'd do an up-to-date episode covering news that has nothing to do with COVID-19, but that you might have missed because, well, all the news sources are covering all the coronavirus stuff. So, Adam, what came across your desk recently? Well, I guess two papers came across my desk that I found particularly interesting, and they're in pretty different areas of biology, but uh, areas that I care a lot about. The first was in the April 8th issue of Nature, and it has to do with a bacteria-derived enzyme, or actually I should say that wrong. It's a it's a biological enzyme that can uh, break down the plastic that we use for water bottles. Wait, what? So like... There's an enzyme that somehow has been designed to break down plastic? Yeah, so it turns out there's a pretty long history in this. You have a number of uh, species of both bacteria and fungi that have evolved hydrolases that can break down the primary constituent of a plastic water bottle, which is a type of plastic called polyethylene terephthalate, or PET, P-E-T. So it's interesting because some of these have been discovered literally in the compost heaps in and around uh, recycling facilities. And so this paper, which was from some research groups in France, took a known biological kind of a wild type species of hydrolase, which is actually known as leaf branch compost cutinase or LLC, and re-engineered it to have better properties to basically do its work more efficiently and also have some thermostability because the way that PET is recycled today is we basically squish them all down into a little cube. We actually try to separate them often into the like colors and then melt them down and then reuse the component parts. There's a lot of waste in this system. Uh, A lot of things, kind of only about 30% of PET that goes through recycling actually sort of gets downcycled into other plastic products. A lot of things are kind of unusable and they end up being a kind of low quality plastic things like, you know, the plastic fibers in a rug that ultimately gets thrown away, ultimately. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's 
it's not real. It's like recycling a name only in mm -hmm. many ways, which, which which is just crushes me in my heart, right? Because I'm such a diligent and dedicated recycler. I'm one of those people who literally picks the black something out of the black bin, puts it in the blue bin, and vice versa. Yeah, and like I, you know, the few times I've made the mistake of leaving the sticker on the banana peel, uh, you've searched through the compost to pull it out, which is impressive to me because it does not compost. It like yeah, <laughs> You're right. exactly. You're right. Exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, so basically what they did, I mean, if you like this idea of using nature to come up with ideas, obviously Mother Nature has, through course of evolution, created many ingenious solutions to a lot of different problems of survival and reproduction, but then taking the bio-inspiration and using rational molecular tools to improve upon what nature has done, you know, this is just a, a fantastic example of this. So let me tell you a little bit more about what this group did. The first is, I thought was just interesting, is, is the history because, as I mentioned, there's been a couple of, of species of both um, bacteria and fungi that have known to have these um, pet pet aces or pet hydrolases that can do this type of breaking down the polyethylene terephthalate. But they generally don't do it that well. Now, this particular, uh, so this group took a bunch of these existing enzymes and they characterized them and tried to figure out first which one is the best of the ones that are just kind of wild type found out there in nature. And this uh, leaf branch compost cutinase or LLC was found to be the best of the bunch, but still had a lot to be you know, desired. And so they were able to basically get the, they knew the sequence, the amino acid sequence, and they used the crystal structure and they figured out where the binding domains are. That is where the kind of enzymatic domains that are doing the real business of breaking down, uh, essentially what breaks it down into, um, it uh, snips the bonds between the two building blocks, which are terephthalate and ethylene glycol. But the point of the story is, is so then they, they knew that there were 15 amino acids that were in this uh, kind of uh, catalytic domain. And so they basically said, well, let's start to substitute them with doing what's called a computer-aided mutagenesis substitution. And they uh, started testing then 209 different new variants that they created hmm. and to figure out which were the ones who had the most, the, the, the most efficient you know, plastic eating properties. So they would like set these bacteria out on a bunch of plastic, you know, remnants of water bottles uh, and, and see who ate them faster? Yeah, basically. Basically. And then, and they, of course, the, you know, they also did some thermostability modifications too, because it's known that the kind of wild type found in nature uh, hydrolases uh, start to either wear out or they stop working at above 65 degrees uh, uh, Celsius. The reason why that's important is because, as I mentioned, the standard recycling process for these pet types of plastics is kind of making them into a molten form. And so you'd love to have something that kind of works well with that basic industrial process that's in use today. And so by putting some disulfide bridges inside this enzyme, they were able to increase its thermal stability to make it more consistent with the current practice. And so this seems pretty cool. So they basically had a huge mass of PET and they found that they could, uh, not only did they engineer some really efficient PET breakers, but they found that they could, de they could basically break down 90% of a 200 gram sample of PET in about 10 hours. Hmm. So, I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot, but if you imagine the millions and millions of tons of PET that's kind of tried to be recycled every year and the ability to scale up 
you know, in big fermentation tanks, all of these pet uh, breakers, these hydrolases, it could be pretty, you could imagine a really elegant solution to what right now has been a very vexing problem. I think one of the things that I particularly like about this story is what I didn't mention in the beginning is that this particular LLC enzyme, which was first described by a post a doctoral student at the University of Osaka, she found this through a what's called a metagenomics um, strategy where they don't actually know the species. They basically looked at a mishmash of compost and were able to pull out genetic material from this sample. Hmm. Now, it shares structural similarity to other fungal hydrolases. Hmm. So they presume it comes from a fungal species, but they don't actually know what species of fungus it came from. It literally was in what's called Expo Park, which is in Osaka, Japan, outside of a recycling facility. That's where they first identified this LLC. And so, so now we have this kind of mutant form that's been kind of engineered, enhanced, that could break down plastics. And, you know, when I think about... Um, the bioremediation strategies that we have used quite elegantly throughout the world. If you think of oil spills, if you think of wastewater treatment plants, there's a lot of industrial processes that are using these engineered enzymes. And here's another great example of that. It would be amazing if we could sort of figure out some of these, uh, some solution to the big plastic islands out there, you know, in the in the oceans. But this is a particular one that from Tournier and, and, and colleagues from France in the April 8th issue of Nature, I thought was really, really cool. Awesome. Well, I want to leave your second story for the end, um, in part because I have two stories that I want to talk about, too. Um, one is positive and the other one is not so positive. So I thought maybe we could we could end with your um, second one, which hopefully has a positive message, too. But um, I love the, you know, recycling bacterium enhancement story that seems so important these days um, and uh, and such good news, <laughs> potentially. So, um you know, I'm not I'm not religious, but one of my favorite holidays is the kind of renewal of spring, which often coincides with the Easter or Passover holidays, depending on um, you know what what traditional religion you might uh, celebrate or not, um, or you know you just might it might it's hard to get around the sort of commercialization of Easter, and so like, but I love this whole kind of pagan idea of there's a time when the spring renewal comes, and you know little baby birds are born and little you know crocuses shoot up out of the ground and the trees flower and everything there's something really uh, uplifting to me about that particular season and so I'd love to kind of you know bring a little bit of the pastel renewal spring stuff into our home and one of the things I like to do as, as well is to rely on tradition and since I was raised uh, traditionally in the Lithuanian culture we used to dye eggs uh, around Easter time. And this actually turns out to be kind of a, a, a pagan ritual because it's it predates Christianity. And uh, Lithuanians, of course, by, are by far not the only uh, culture that did this. In fact, I was recently reading uh, this paper uh, in a journal called Antiquity that talked about 5,000-year-old ostrich eggs uh, that were traded um, around the Mediterranean during the Bronze and Iron Ages. And uh, these researchers were trying to figure out, you know, some details about these decorated ostrich 
ostrich eggs. And it turns out that what they found is that the ostrich eggs actually were from wild birds. So I guess the people would go and find wild ostrich eggs, and then they would decorate them in a number of different ways. Smooth scraping, polishing, pecking, scratching, scoring, picking, and shaving. Uh, and they created these, these very kind of ornate decorative eggs that were very fragile. And I thought that was really interesting to think about, like, first of all, the creative artistry that uh, our species has shown for thousands and thousands of years. And the way this is this whole idea of like decorating something as fragile as an egg, you know, has has been around for so long. It's interesting that they would choose an egg. Yeah, you know, right. And on the one hand, it is a beautiful, smooth, in most cases, light color, but not all, you know, avian eggs are white, the way mm -hmm. you tend to think of your, you know, one of the predominant chicken egg or just, but yeah, you're right. It's quite fragile. But it has this like, um, you know, really wonderful metaphor for renewal mm -hmm. and birth. And True. also eggs are very, you know, they're, they're very nutritious. So there's like a, you know, that all the, the important stuff of life is contained within. Um, I just think it's, 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 a, it's just a really kind of poetic uh, way of finding a decorative object. And, you know, as we were using this traditional me method of like decorating our own eggs by boiling onion uh, skins and putting on flowers, I was thinking like, this is, this is something that humans have been doing for, you know, at least 5,000 years. So people weren't awesome. taking the eggs, even though they could be richly decorated, and cracking them and, and eating them. Uh, no, no, I it's think not you, a, that's not an early no, meal delivery service. No, no, I mean, I think probably what they did is, I mean, I, don't, I didn't, I don't, don't, I don't remember reading this in the paper about what they, what we we used to do with the eggs is that um, you actually blow out. Um, through you make a little tiny sure. hole and yeah. you blow out the inside right. so that the egg doesn't rot and then you yeah. retain the, the shell yeah. um, which makes it of course even easier to break uh, you know in our family we have the egg fight where you actually yeah. take the decorated eggs and you yeah. you uh, you try to crack them and whoever has an intact egg wins um, yeah. and uh, yeah I lost this uh, it's year. interesting that they wouldn't uh, come up with a method of filling them yeah. you know if you think of the way of mummification so where this would have been this Middle Eastern? Where were these eggs primarily? So these were um, so, so in the Mediterranean. Age, Mediterranean. Yeah. I just want so to be interesting to find some Cairo. sort of like waxy or some sort of substance that you could fill in, fill them with. Maybe maybe hard. Even if you had a tiny funnel. I'm just trying to put myself in their head to something that yeah. might... Yeah, I mean, what I would think would work is maybe like a tiny string that you could then put in. So it'd become like a, it would, in the inside of it would just be filled with like a, some kind of like wool or material that, you know, mm. you could slowly, but mm. I don't know. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. 
Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. So that was the positive story. Uh, The slightly not so positive, but maybe with an ultimately a positive message story uh, was published in the journal Personality Social Psychology Bulletin, um, also in March 2020. Uh, The title is kind of tells you the whole story. um, Can't buy me love or friendship, uh, the social consequences of financially contingent self-worth. This is from uh, the authors are the University of Buffalo and uh, I, I believe at Harvard as well. And essentially, what they did is they they had a, a fairly large uh, sample, and they looked at four cross sectional studies of, of over two thousand people, and a daily diary study of about two hundred and almost fifty people. And what they what they found essentially is that if you if you base your self worth, if part of how you define your own self worth is based on financial success, uh, you also seem to be more prone to greater feelings of loneliness and social disconnection, which even even though this is a COVID-19 free zone, I think is kind of interesting in this moment in time when people's financial success or financial worth might be totally not contingent uh, on anything that they can control. And so it might actually make it more, you know, that if, if, if you base your self-worth on that, this could be, you know, a particularly difficult time. But the silver lining is that now if you change your own conception of your self-worth to go away from your financial success, it turns out that you might feel more connected and less lonely um, because now you might define your own self-worth within social terms, which seems better overall for your mental and emotional health. I wonder how financially contingent self-worth is generally measured in someone. I presume it's some sort of self-reported survey or scale, which I just wonder how valid that is, test, retest, reliability, simply because I don't think that we would necessarily have the introspective powers to say, you know what, most of my self-worth is actually wrapped up in how much money I make. <laughs> most people, despite having whatever level of you know professional success or material wealth, because they don't always have to be you know, um, tied, those things don't have to be correlated, but most people usually have some sort of positive bias, you know, where they're, you know, think of themselves as more of their attributes, um, their positive attributes. I, I don't know. I just. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, obviously there are uh, scales that have been developed with this in mind that have been v- validated the way traditional psychological scales have been validated um, for, you know, validity and reliability. Um, there's also a, a a study that was published in the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships in 2019 that showed that valuing time over money is associated with greater social connection. So there, you know, it's it's possible that when you're valuing money over time, you know, you that that's sort of the argument the paper is making that um, if you know if you like you know in these kinds of scales where you say um, what's more important to me is you know what I do today to day or what's mm. more important to me is what's in my bank account you know those kinds of that's questions. That's interesting. Yeah. So if you if if persistently you show that you value money over time, um, that te- seems to correlate with uh, impoverished social relationships because of course you are not prioritizing. Mm-hmm 
socializing with people. And now it seems like the opposite is true as well, that if, in fact, if you value time, my time is more important to, you know, than, than the money that I make, that does lead to um, correlations with, great, with measures of greater social connection. Yeah, I'd love to read that paper because in some ways, my initial reaction is, of course, isn't that what we're all taught in kindergarten? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. So is it just is it just a, well, a large scale confirmation of kind of what we always like believe in an idea? Like I'm wondering what if there's any really counterintuitive findings in there. So or... I think what they're saying is that yes, we all sort of know this intuitively, but what they're trying to do is explain why that is. Mm-hmm. And what they're saying is that the reason that you're that this is the outcome is because you don't prioritize social relationships and therefore you spend all your time making more money and not crafting your social relationships. And so what the, mm-hmm. what they're trying to say here is not that it's a new finding that that this is not good for you. That what they're trying to say is this is why <laughs> um, you know this this ends up happening. Hmm. Yeah, I'd be curious if they if they divided people who are like um, people who maybe inherited wealth versus those who are the, you know, the kind of entrepreneurial kind of self-made wealth. Yeah. So I think here. Yeah, I think. Well, I I think here it's tying your wealth building to self-worth. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's how well, I guess whether that means that you're a good money manager of your own inherited funds or whether you're the one that's like making money. But I think it's about this idea that your financial success is is tied to your self-esteem. Mm-hmm. All right, so tell me about your last study. Well, you know, I think you and I both had long-standing interests in the neural basis of creativity. Mm-hmm. And there was an interesting paper from John Cuneo's lab uh, in Drexel in Philadelphia where they were using... Uh, looking at jazz guitarists and in real-time improvisation and jazz guitarists, this is a an interesting methodological strategy that uh, your colleague Charles Lim, you know, has has kind of pioneered, if you will, uh, in improvisational musicians. Wait a minute, is really... this is sounding really familiar. Was this a study in neuroimage? Yes. Did you see the paper too? Well, so the Society for the Neuroscience of Creativity, which um, I'm on the executive board for, this was a special issue that we put out recently that was all related to the neuroscience of creativity. Uh, so I'm delighted to see that one of the papers has gotten some extra press. Yeah, no, it's absolutely fantastic. And I guess I picked it up in part because of this use of the jazz musicians. Yeah, um, let's I, hear about it. Well, I mean, it's it's a it's a, a very elegant study. You know, this... so. Uh, let me just tell you what they did first, and I'll tell you sort of the conceptual value of, of what they found, because they were able to unpack what are some interesting theoretical considerations of the neural basis of creativity. And so what they did was they had a group of jazz guitarists of varying experience levels, and they basically quantified experience based on the number of public performances. So that was kind of one public performance. And they had each guitarist perform a number of eight-minute jazz improvisations, hmm. okay, while wearing EEGs uh, on their head. And they performed hmm. seven of these eight-minute uh, jazz improvisations. And then they had judges rate a bunch of the all of these, these 12 blocks were essentially 18 improvisations, and they had independent assessments using what is a very, very common scale called the consensual assessment technique, 
where they're judges, uh, they're judged on a seven-point Likert scale on three dimensions: creativity, aesthetic appeal, and technical proficiency. Yeah. So conceptual assessment is when you take experts in that domain and you send the samples to them, and they 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 reach a consensus essentially of like how they assess the value of these things. So basically, what you're you're harnessing is the fact that you know the domain experts are the ones who can tell you how creative something something is. It's a technique pioneered by Teresa Amabile, and it's yeah, very exactly well respected. Right. And, and what, what I liked about this process is, you know, a lot, there's sort of different methodological approaches to setting creativity. In some cases, you simply have high creative people compared to low creative people, and mm-hmm. you sort of look at their outputs and how they do things. But here is really what they're looking at was comparing higher quality performances to lower quality performances – Within the as same rated, Yeah, within yeah. the same individuals cool. as rated by these independent assessments. It's important to know that they found pretty good inner, inner rater reliability on these, different messes, uh, on these different measurements of the consensual assessment technique. So they, at least you, you knew that when things were judged to be of high improvisational quality and creativity, that it wasn't just one person feeling that and then someone else didn't think it was mm-hmm. very creative, but rather it was at least clear to these domain experts that they could they could distinguish between high and low um, kind of performance quality. Yeah, the Raiders do. That's important because there are definitely, uh, ev- you know, uh, studies that have shown that sometimes uh, musicians, especially composers, do not agree <laughs> on, uh, you know, how creative a particular piece is. So, so that's nice that they had some nice inner Raider reliability. Good. So I'm going to try to describe their results. And they basically found that so if I take a step back, I think we all appreciate that there is a standard dogmatic view of brain functioning where you could be left brain, you can be right brain, and the right brain folks are creative, and you know the left brain folks are analytical and precise, mm-hmm. and and that obviously is a, a sort of a false dichotomy, and you know it's it's not worth going through that now, but obviously this this experiment generated a very rich data set across multiple dom- variables, right? Mm-hmm. But just to, to try to unpack some of the key findings, now here I am reading from the abstract. So one, the first thing found is that higher quality improvisations, right? So these are the ones that are being assessed by the raters as being higher quality, were associated with predominantly posterior but less left hemisphere activity. Hmm. Whereas lower quality improvisations were associated with right temporal parietal and frontal polar activity. Hmm. So that, again, sort of flies in the face of what is this very kind of simplistic view of right brain versus left brain. But it, but it's in line with this front of the brain, back of the brain idea that we see in often in, in improvisation. Sorry to interrupt you. But that, you know, that like if you're using too much of your prefrontal cortex, that you're overthinking and not being and not allowing the music to flow through, but like the back of the brain. So I think like the left posterior, um, what that that's what we see, what Charles Lim has shown in, in jazz musicians, that the back of the brain is more active while the front of the brain is less active. Right. And in another piece of this, which is really bringing the kind of theoretical um, thrust you know, to the forefront here is this notion what uh, John Cuneos and his collaborators at Drexel have talked about, this dual process theory, where in earlier parts of um, your training, when you're still, a, uh, when you're not quite, quite a domain expert, you need to really engage the frontal lobe and you need to engage a lot of these thoughtful, mm-hmm. you know, deliberate mm-hmm. things. But as you get better and better, it, what I would sort of 
you know, colloquially describe as kind of the, the table stakes of whatever the domain is. Like, do you have all the keystrokes down? Do you have the, you know, the, 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 the finger picking and just everything? Mm-hmm. So you don't have to think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Then you can have a hypofrontality. So mm-hmm. you then disengage those, those frontal parts of the brain and then allow yourself to, um, you know, get into that, you know, almost state of flow mm. that requires less of that kind of frontal executive functioning, mm-hmm. um, um, network and 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 they show data that was very you know consistent with that um, what they call a uh, type uh, type one type creativity which is this hypofrontality coupled with a posterior disinhibition. That's really cool. It's always exciting to see how like the neuroscience of creativity is becoming more robust, uh, you know, better controlled, and also giving us some really interesting findings. Which, at least in the case of jazz improvisation, uh, turning off the executive mind is some sometimes really makes you more creative, as you can just let the back of the brain speak. I think, and, and plus, we're, we're we're building a much more nuanced view of the interplay of different brain regions, a different. At different points and in, in a way the the creative process right across yeah. the creative process and even a great study like this is still correlational in mm-hmm. its nature the field will really take a huge step and we'll have to confront a lot of ethical dilemmas when we start to then intervene and start to try to find strategies at different points in that creative process where we can enhance creativity. Yeah. Now, you know, Cuneos has done this with 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 uh, his doctoral or postdoctoral student, this, uh, this this guy Rosen, who is the lead author on this paper, where they've done some transcranial direct current stimulation in the right dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. So they've started to start to you know to start to delve into that, and you can even think going back ten or fifteen years ago. Who's the Australian Alan guy? Alan Snyder's mm-hmm. work, which I don't really mm-hmm. know if anything ever came of that mm-hmm. stuff. But the idea being that as we start to get a really detailed framework for the puzzle pieces that come together in the brain, I think that starts to shine some light on how we could even imagine about intervening in a way that could enhance creativity. And that, to me, is a really exciting prospect but I'm a techno-optimist. Yeah, and it also blows away this idea that, oh, you're just born creative or you're not. Like here you have like a fundamental change in how the task is done and how, how different brain regions are, are involved with training and expertise. And uh, so that's always exciting to me too. And then of course, yeah, this, this, this idea of then how can we use this knowledge to enhance creativity to speed that process along is one that I'm very interested in. So thanks for sharing. Yeah, because if there's a way to get into a state of hypofrontality more quickly, mm-hmm. That seems like a great on performance day. Yeah. But not during practice day. Exactly. Well, that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I know this is a hard time for a lot of us, and we could really use your support. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. Joining me today was Adam Bristol. Thanks for having me, Indre. See you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. 
by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.